Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, a podcast for embedded Linux developers. Hi, welcome to today's podcast. Uh, I, I, this is uh, Gene Sally with TimeSys. I, I usually do my podcast with Mache. Mache, though, wised up. And he went on vacation. So it's just going to be me today. Uh, and so hopefully I won't bore you for too much. Uh, we always start off by telling people that if you want to send in your questions, your comments, uh, do so at uh, podcast.timesys.com. Uh, or you can visit us at www.timesys.com. And, you know, of course, this is supposed to be easy to find, but you have to click on services and then on podcasts. It's uh, like two point thing. And then you go to the podcast page. And there's a link there that'll tell you how to, um, It'll tell you how to you know, leave us some comments. I guess send us some email. We do get a, a decent amount of email, and we try to reply. Uh, but sometimes we don't. So sorry if you don't get something back from us. Um, and uh, it also helps us figure out what we're going to talk about for future shows and uh, topics and things along those lines. Today, I want to talk about uh, development tools. Timesys has a lot of customers that are are, are new to Linux. And they call up very well intentioned and they say, well, what tools do I need in order to be productive, in order to do the right thing for my project? And it's a really difficult question to, to, to answer. Um, one of the things about times is we don't like to, um, we like to have people get what they need, right? And uh, when people come and ask for tools, they're, they're well intentioned because they want something to, to boost their productivity. And if they're new to Linux, a lot of the times what they're really looking for is some shield over what's really happening in Linux, in order to get their uh, in order to get their project done, that's a totally okay goal, uh, but it does lead to some expectation problems. And uh, so, I guess in my talk about tools today, I'm going to have a little bit of uh, 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 some practical advice about what kind of tools you would need and um, and and uh, uh, what they do and what uh, what I know a lot of our developers use. And I guess at the same time, I'm going to blab on about my philosophy about using tools, which is probably what a lot of people aren't that interested in uh, to hear uh, when they expect some tool to do something something magic for them. Um, so I, I guess you know the first thing people ask for is they'll start and they'll say, well, we'll ask them, they'll say, what tools do I need? And we ask, well, what, what are you going to do? What's your, what is your goal? And it's very interesting because usually at that point, uh, uh, the people we talk to almost stop in, in their tracks and Sometimes they don't know really what they want, and or who's going to be using it, and, and so we tell them, you know, hey, if you're doing board bring up, you'll need this thing called a JTAG debugger, which is joint something action group. I, I can't remember what the T means. I should remember what the T means. But JTAG is a specification for um, uh, for doing uh, scans and 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 talking directly to the to the processor and poking around in the memory on the board. And that's usually used to debug something when you don't have an operating system because the operating system does some other magical stuff for you uh, in terms of process scheduling. Uh, however, if you're in the I'm new to Linux category, something like that is you know, like a, a very sophisticated planing tool to a, to a new carpenter. You're not going to ever do that sort of task. And you don't really know what it is. And it's sort of the tool in itself, considering what it does, is actually quite scary. It's sort of frightening at that point that you'd think that you'd need that sort of tool to do your job. Like I, I, I don't know how many people work on their – like to fiddle with their cars or like to work on their house or whatever else. But you'll know that a basic mechanic or a basic person doing home building really – doesn't need you know extremely 
uh, sophisticated tools because they're really not doing extremely sophisticated things, right? Um, and if you confront them with something like a spring compressor or you know a very sophisticated uh, a, a saw or anything along those lines, they'll they'll generally uh, think that the task that they have to do is difficult because the tool that they have is, is so mysterious to them. So the, the other thing is, I guess, the, I sort of brought up there is understanding. You know how good of a person you are uh, with respect, or not how good of a person you are. You know what I mean, but uh, how skilled of a person you are with respect to the, to the task you're undertaking, and then uh, trying to look for the right right thing there. Like we know a lot of our customers are they are experienced developers, right? So they are f- familiar with the the whole collection of text editors and uh, sort of make tools and those kinds of issues. And to a great degree, they're they're almost relieved when they hear that they can use those to be successful with, with a Linux development project. And to a great degree, when you're doing exploration for Linux, it's probably a good place to start. Um, uh, you can get a lot done with Linux with just a text editor and a notepad. And, and doing that, or just a text editor rather than a command prompt. And, and by doing that, you tend to cut out a lot of confusion that's related uh, to just uh, using the tool. Um, uh, Timesys has an, uh, an Eclipse-based IDE. Uh, the point here is not to sell the IDE, but uh, Timesys does have a very sophisticated IDE. And it's interesting that a lot of people uh, that are maybe new to Linux sort of expect the IDE to do some work for them. And if you sort of if you go back to the like I'm I know one of our another person here is is also uh, into woodworking and I do construction stuff quite a bit. And so if you think about Timestorm. And what it does versus what a text editor does, or, or even worse than that, Emacs, right? If you're if you're really talking about the Uber tool for everything, I mean, they're actually quite sophisticated, and they have more knobs and bells and things to turn and stuff to do and settings. And uh, but to a great degree, they really don't help you do your job faster if you don't understand your job. So you can have a very sophisticated uh, uh, table saw. Believe it or not, you can spend more money than you want to think about on a table saw. Um, I, I know when I explain to my wife, it's important. And, uh, um, it's still not a good sell for her. She still grumbles that whatever. It's like, you know, I could buy six purses for that much or whatever. I, and a pair of shoes. You know, what are you doing? Um, but, but for a beginner, uh, buying a $4,000 table saw or something like that uh, really wouldn't change uh, your ability to make straight cuts, believe it or not, uh, you can you can do things that are um, extraordinarily, uh, or put it this way, and you could do things just as well with something that costs a tenth as much, uh, and still get the right results uh, because you're really not trying to do anything that sophisticated. Um, if you can't make a straight cut, it doesn't matter how much you spend on your table saw, your cuts won't be straight. It's just not going to happen. And so, but, but the flip of it is if you have a good understanding of how to use the equipment, uh, a much less expensive piece of equipment will, will work just, just as well. You know, the thing is, uh, for, uh, for me, like one of my other favorite construction things, I have a very, I have, uh, uh, I have a very sophisticated wet saw for cutting tile. And I also have, and it's, and again, this was maybe like in wife terms, uh, half a family trip vacation somewhere and I don't know, uh, a jacket. I, I got me, but there's that. And, and, um, and then I also, I also have a, an extremely small tabletop wetsaw that, that is probably, you know, maybe a pair of shoes in, in wife terms, uh, cost. And then I have a scoring tool and a scoring tool is actually a very inexpensive piece of equipment. Um, that, um, that just sort of makes a line in the top of the tile and you give it a little pressure and it, it cuts. Um, 
But it's very interesting in that f- for as much as work as I do, I rely on the the eighteen dollar tile cutting tool more than I do on the ultra super sophisticated wet saw, and, and that's because. Uh, after doing more tiling than I really want to admit to doing, uh, the inexpensive, simple-to-use tool is actually better for most jobs. And uh, and and the super-sophisticated tool is when you need to do you know compound cuts for something that's going to fit in the bathroom. And you really don't find yourself using it that much. And it's the same thing with software uh, tools. Uh, once you become skilled, you generally tend to prefer something that's that's actually quite simple. And it seems to me that if you're um, if you're new, uh, you generally tend to look at this tool with a whole bunch of knobs and, and things to turn, and think that that will you know, somehow make you more productive. Um, so, uh, so that's a, a little bit of the uh, sorry to mumble on there about the philosophy there. So, when users come to us, sometimes they're somewhat amazed that you can do something with just a text editor and 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 actually be quite productive, uh, depending upon your skill level. And for those listening, I don't mean to lump Emacs into the text editor group, but so um, so you, you can actually uh, get quite a bit done uh, with those. And then, uh, and then if you're interested in 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 doing you know development and you like the, the graphical tools and whatever else, you know, there's a lot of different solutions out there uh, for that as well. And and all of them work, you know, you know, fantastic once you know what you're doing. So. Um, uh, uh, back to the tool set. Okay, so uh, the other thing I found that uh, there's a lot of folks out there, and they ask, "Well, what do I need to develop on?" Uh, we have some folks that do work on uh, Windows hosts, and some folks that do work on Linux. Um, it's interesting that depending, uh, there's really no uh, correlation for the customer I've seen that that prefer Linux or Windows for a development environment. It's interesting. We have a lot of folks out there that that actually use Windows for for Linux development, and they. They're using Windows because that's what the guys in IT say they have to use. Believe it or not, that happens more than than you like to admit. Um, or they're like it because of a, a bunch of other productivity type solutions that, that that Windows offers that Linux just doesn't have. Um, and so, you know, for that group of people, uh, or you know, for, for that group of people that they really want to stick with Windows. Um, and you have another group that's out there that that are that are Linux users, and generally. Um, uh, generally, Linux users have no desire to switch to Windows, right? If they're using it for their desktop, generally they're not going to go backwards. And so when you have the desktop environment, either one is really fine for doing development. There are some issues whenever you get um, – uh, whenever you're uh, getting a tool chain that you need uh, a tool chain that's cross-compiled such that it, it runs on Windows. And usually most of those tool chains, you use the MinGW or Sigwin, uh, sort of this POSIX layer. Uh, that supplies the the syscalls that that wouldn't otherwise exist on a Windows platform, so you can run your new programs uh, like your cross compiler, whatever else. And so you'll need those for the Windows side. Uh, the other thing that, that that sort of bites people for Windows a little bit is neither one of these solutions have the concept of a loopback device. And there are times whenever you're building out your root file system or your image where you need to create. Um, uh, what's called a what's called a loopback device, and this is that's some device that uh, uh, how can I put it? It's a file that you create on your file system, and then you can point in a device node uh, at that file. So it's a neat way of being able to you know mount a file system or otherwise create a file that is an image of a file system on your machine. Uh, we found that you know the folks that use Windows um, 
there are substitute programs that can build different file systems without having a loopback device in, involved at all. And, and that makes life a lot easier. But for kernel builds and everything else, either Linux or Windows are, are perfectly, perfectly good solutions. The, the other thing, the one thing to point out is that if you are, if you are using uh, Windows, that's, that's just fine. Um, Tool-wise, you'll just need to make sure you pick things that respect the line-ending characteristics of, of Windows versus Linux. Um, the GNU compilers do not take well to having uh, improperly formatted line endings in their files. Um, and so a lot of people will uh, use, a, use an editor uh, in Windows and, well, they'll save their file. And what do you know? Uh, uh, it'll have a bunch of uh, line ending characters that the compiler chokes on and, and reports as illegal. So, I mean, there's just a few little issues there. But either, either Linux or Windows, uh, they're, they're just great uh, uh, for development environment. Uh, personally, I use, uh, for as much to do as I, as I switch between uh, Linux and Windows, um, I find that uh, the, the, the extra layers that Sigwin inter- introduces or, or MinGW introduces has an impact on performance that for larger projects that uh, just irritates me. Uh, so the, then I'll switch back to, to Linux for that. But e- e- either one. And then the, the, the other thing is, so once you get your development environment, um, uh, or the if, if you once you have a basic development environment, some people go out and look for the, they prefer an IDE, uh, and as someone that has done work but, you know, before I uh, uh, started doing Linux work, I used Microsoft's Developer Studio for my primary IDE for years. And if you like that environment, uh, uh, there's two you know, big solutions out there. One is uh, one is a, uh, a KDE um, environment. You have K- something called KDevelop, and then there's also um, uh, Eclipse and time, you know, times this is time storm product is based on Eclipse for embedded development. And they provide, you know, good, uh, good IDE environments for, for development. I am partial, uh, I'm partial towards, uh, uh, time storm, our product and, uh, or Eclipse because it does have some stuff built into it that makes your life easier for, you know, for embedded development. Uh, but if you're not interested, if you're looking for the you know, 100% free solution, definitely you can uh, beat Eclipse around. You know, put some effort into doing that and and, and using that as as your IDE. And the one thing I guess is a semi-contradictory is that I, I know the IDE has a lot of best, you know, a lot of bells and whistles and things to turn. However, I, um, I still tend to like it because you know, for IDE for for Eclipse, uh, uh, I can turn off most of the bells and whistles I'm not interested in. Uh, I know for most of the time I'm most productive uh, when I simply just turn off everything and have a white screen and you know whatever it is I'm looking at and I can swap in between some files. Um, the the one of the things that's fu- that I always found frustrating about uh, Microsoft's Dev Studio was that you couldn't turn off enough in order to not to not be distracted you know, with your work and so you had to you you had to give up uh, a quarter of your screen space to an application that you weren't you weren't really interested in while you could have that filled up with code or something else that was interesting. So, uh, uh, you know, that's a a great, great place to, a great tool to use for, you know, those types of, um, those types of development tasks. Last set of tools we get into are along the lines of file system creation or uh, uh, image creation. And this is pretty interesting because there are customers out there who has it difficult to say they really aren't aware of what's involved in cross compiling something all the way from source. And one of their approaches is to simply 
do that by hand. So what they'll do is they will get the the packages, they'll use the configuration scripts that are built into them, and they'll then brute force go through there and try to compile things uh, ready for delivery. Um, that is definitely something you can do. Whether it's something that you want to do or spend the effort on is a, is a whole other whole other bag of bag of worms. Uh, one of the tools that we use here at Times uh, Timesys to make life easier is RPM. So we have Red Hat Package Manager hold on to our source code and also hold on to a lot of the configuration changes necessary and a lot of the settings that are necessary in order to get something to build uh, build successfully. And if you need to get it set up with a repeatable build environment using something like RPM files or package files that contain all of your build settings um, and can properly influence the way uh, AutoMake and AutoConf run it, it is a huge productivity booster. Uh, I know even one of the things we did here, was, we have an open source project that's out there at, um, uh, for times is, is you know, encapsulate a lot of those RPM-isms inside of a, or not necessarily RPSM, but build issues inside of a file that'll you know, automatically build an RPM uh, for you. And so that makes our life a lot easier in that we can use what's in the make and configure and you know, set up some presets so that it skips over code that we know is a little bit dicey in order to get a, a clean compile. Uh, and then after that, you, you know, if you, then, then the other um, issue we know people run across is building the root file system. Um, root file system construction is, is always an interesting sort of chore because at, even to the amount we've, you know, at a company we've tried to put effort into getting this automated and set up and working, um, there is always some custom work that, that has to, to be done that's really difficult to encapsulate in a, um, in a general purpose program. So, you know, customers will, will get in there and they'll always need to have one file copied in from someplace else, or they need to set the permissions on something differently, or they need to run over all the files and set them with a certain date before it goes out. Uh, any number of sort of random type activities uh, the customer needs to perform against this root file system before it goes on, on the board. And we found that uh, a lot of customers, same thing, will build a make file and a big bash script that encapsulates that. And then tool-wise, in order to create the root file system, they'll use the tools that come with uh, the the file system that they're creating. So there's, if you're using like a CramFS file system, that will have make CramFS and a couple other tools that'll that'll tell you about uh, your file system so that you can tune it to to do what it needs to do better, right? In order to get a smaller file system. Uh, I also didn't want to leave out. I have my notes here, believe it or not, and I, but I didn't want to leave out uh, analysis tools. And that's actually quite interesting in that once customers will, you know, create something, the first thing is, well, first things first is get it to work, right? And then the next question is, as the boss comes by and says, well, yeah, can you make it smaller or we have these other constraints? And so there are some uh, great tools. One is mPatrol um, uh, that'll do things like leak detection um, and the other is electric fence and it'll do other dynamic, it'll do a dynamic analysis so that it'll tell you uh, what you're not freeing and what syscalls you're doing incorrectly. And most of these run by just recompiling your program and putting in a little bit of instrumentation code. Some work by, uh, by running your program in a certain execution context. 
and then and then reporting the results. Both of them are actually very useful. I mean, I recommend doing re- recommend doing some sort of uh, dynamic analysis on your code before sending it out, because as much as you you know, look and test, um, you're really not going to hit all the corner cases or issues that that, that will um, that will trip you up. And I found that most people have been, you know, happier with M-Control or Electrofence and other uh, static analysis uh, tools, which which sort of brings me to the the, the cousin of that um, cousin of that issue, which is uh, debugging. Um, I know I mentioned right at the beginning that you know one of the more sophisticated debugging tools out there is a JTAG debugger, which does you know, direct memory hardware access on a machine in order to figure out what's going on. Uh, most embedded developers that are doing um, application development and debugging use uh, GDB. And uh, GDB is the GNU debugger, perfectly fine debugger. Um, I know that it's um, I know that it's been ported to run on the majority of platforms out there um, so that if you need to debug on the board, you can set up a remote session and it'll run something on your remote board and it communicates so you can see what's going on. Curiously, what I found is that a lot of folks are much more, and that's not what I found, but uh, uh, seems like an overwhelming people follow the pattern of doing most of their development on their host machine and then just uh, cross-compiling it and running it on the target and make sure that they didn't run across any sort of target-oriented issues. And they try to reduce the amount of cross-debugging that they do. And that makes sense because if you've used the the cross-debugging, it does run substantially slower than uh, debugging natively. Uh, and that's not a fault of the software so much as as it is uh, an artifact of um, an artifact of GDB running remotely and having to transmit a, a lot of data over the wire back and forth to represent the state of the system for every step. But as a user, you can avoid a lot of that simply by you know doing your debugging work locally. You think about it, you know, for for most of your stuff, it's uh, most of the code you write. You really don't need a, a target machine. Uh, probably until the very end, unless you have some magic special device, and a lot of times those are you know PCI devices anyway, where you could probably somehow sneak it inside of your PC or USB kind of device. Uh, along those lines, you can uh, uh, otherwise get um, uh, on your PC or emulate close enough for you to do a lot of your debugging. Um, but that, that's pretty much uh, pretty much what I when I wanted to cover today. Uh, again, you know the things to remember are um, there's really a, there really isn't a magic tool for you. Um, and um, uh, and don't be um, don't be uh, embarrassed or don't don't feel like you must get some magic tool in order to be productive. I think this is probably the most uh, important bit um, uh, to remember. So you know, feel free to to look around and uh, at your current development tools, and chances are those might be applicable, just perfect for. Uh, for for your embedded Linux project, I, this is complete side by. I still know one guy who who still uses Microsoft Visual Studio to to actually write his code, his code for his projects, because he he just loves it, and that's completely fine, right? <laughs> He's just used to. It. Of course, he debugs using something else, but um, but that's that's what he uses for his primary primary editor because he's comfortable with it and it works exactly the way he needs it to. So. You know, look first to what you have, and and because those are the things you understand. And as you're looking around for other tools, uh, don't expect any of them to be you know magic tools that do exactly everything that you need and will shield you from uh, from this operating system. Uh, a lot of those, again, to repeat, a lot of those choices are made because you're typically fearful about doing Linux and you don't understand. Therefore, you expect 
some piece of software to understand and do the right the right thing for you, and that's that's just difficult. So, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to send them to us at podcast at timesys.com. Uh, you can visit us at uh, timesys.com, www.timesys.com. And so if you click on services and then podcast, it takes you to the podcast page. There is, I don't even know how many episodes are out there, some number, some number greater than 10 um, episodes. They cover various uh, other, other topics. Oh, no. So, someone's waving fingers at me and saying there's 16 episodes. So, Feel free to check them out and and see what you like. Uh, they said they cover a lot of different topics, uh, from real time systems to um, the real time series. Actually, has been quite popular. We've gotten a lot of feedback on that. Uh, so if you're into real time, you can you can check those out. But there we recover you know, beginnings of Linux programming. Uh, uh, said through things as sophisticated as real time. And it said uh, drop us a line at podcast.timesys.com if you have questions or comments. Thanks. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by Timesys. Are you new to embedded Linux or looking for a way to simplify your next project? The Linux Link service by Timesys makes it easy to build your custom embedded Linux platform. Go to timesys.com or call 866-392-4897 to learn more.